Hi everyone and welcome to the Ingle Nook. Thanks for joining me around the fire for some of history's greatest stories. As always, I'm your host, Logan East. Today we will be continuing with the third and final part in our three-part series on the infamous H.H. Holmes. Part 1 detailed the discovery of Holmes as a murderer, his trial, and his execution. Part 2 described the growth of his legendary status as a mass murderer who operated out of the storied murder castle of Inglewood. If you haven't listened to these two parts yet, I recommend that you do so to get the full story. In Part 3, however, we will be uncovering the real life of H.H. Holmes from his birth until the time of his capture by authorities in late 1894. This account will establish what kind of man he really was, as well as what crimes he is most likely to have actually committed, which were many. Most especially, this episode will point out the numerous areas where the Holmes story has been wildly exaggerated, or, at times, simply invented. In creating this account of events, I am most especially indebted to Adam Selzer's book on Holmes, which is listed in the description. Selzer's research really blew the doors off of what I thought I knew about Holmes, and I expect that my rendition will do the same for many of you. Though it is a bit of a cliché, fact often really is more interesting than fiction. As always, if you enjoy what we do here at the Ingle Nook and would like to support the effort, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Ingle Nook for just $1 a month, available in the description below. I produce the show entirely on my own and appreciate any support you feel inclined to give. But, without further ado, on to the story. Over the course of his life, H.H. Holmes went by many aliases. Holmes is merely his most famous one and the one that he primarily used while living in Chicago. Most of these aliases were only used on paper for launching fraudulent companies or checking into a hotel. In person, his chosen first name was almost always a variation of Henry or Harry, while his last name also often began with an H, such as in the name Henry Harry Howard Holmes. Other similar aliases were Henry Maysfield, excuse me, Henry Maysfield Howard and Harry Gordon. Many have speculated on his choice of names. Some have suggested Arthur Conan Doyle's famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, as an inspiration for his last name a cheeky dare for authorities to discover him, while others have pointed out that names like Howard echoed aliases of other outlaws like Jesse James. My own suspicion is that he liked the alliteration of H names and keeping them similar, usually going by Harry as a nickname to keep his name straight with his various wives and associates, but these are only guesses. In a similar vein, some Holmes scholars have made a hobby of trying to understand his psychology, a trend made common after the development of serial killer theories in the 1980s. Some accounts imagine vignettes of Holmes killing small animals as a child or exemplifying sociopathic tendencies. I want to stay away from this business in charting his life. Sources conflict at times and it is okay to leave some things as a mystery. That said, sources that come after his arrest should be taken with a large grain of salt especially his own confession, which was heavily edited and riddled with blatant lies. Some such accounts from people who had not seen Holmes for 20 years and who had never raised a suspicion about him now remembered him as a young evil genius, while others thought he was a kind, sweet boy. But we will address these problems as they emerge. Herman Webster Mudgett, 
Holmes's birth name, was born in the year 1861 in the sleepy New Hampshire town of Gilmanton to parents Levi and Theodate Mudgett. Levi, Mudgett's father, worked as a house painter and postmaster while the family also owned a farm. Both of his parents were pious Christians who enjoyed a reputation for rectitude and morality. He grew up with several siblings, though little is known about them, and the family lived the sort of close, highly monitored life one would expect a religious, rural New England family to have. Mudgett, though, was a religious skeptic for most of his life until his forays into Catholicism in his final days. Mudgett was exposed to medicine as one possible route out of rural isolation early in life. Mudgett's maternal uncle, Reuben Price, was an assistant surgeon in the Civil War who trained under the local medical legend Dr. Nahum Wright. Excuse me, White, and that's White spelled W-I-G-H-T. White would take in students to study with him and maintained an office in town. White was unusual at the time for his outspoken support for human dissection and the performance of autopsies. Human dissection was then known as demonstration, and was a valuable way for doctors to gain real, practical understanding of human anatomy, which was then still relatively primitive. Mudgett's own life would see the rapid transformation and professionalization of medical science. Demonstration work was still viewed with suspicion as a ghoulish activity, and bodies could be hard to secure, leading to a clandestine industry of grave robbers who were euphemistically called resurrectionists. White might have participated in this business, and it is almost certain that Mudgett would do so in his later medical studies. Mudgett would tell a story in his autobiography of first seeing a demonstration skeleton in Dr. White's office as a child. He claimed that local boys thrust him up close to it as a prank that terrified him and left a strong impression. Whether the event really happened or not, Mudgett would eventually develop a fascination with human anatomy. Mudgett's childhood is chiefly remarkable for how unremarkable it was. Mudgett was generally remembered as a respectful, hard-working boy who was quiet and somewhat shy. He never played much with other boys and instead, and instead preferred to be alone with his thoughts or to take long walks. This situation sometimes led Holmes to feel intellectually superior to his peers and to be impatient with them. Admittedly, I feel that this description could fit many of us as children, myself included. When young, he was regarded as a good student, though his academic performance later proved unremarkable as an adult. For what it is worth, the young Mudgett developed a very strong opinion of his own intelligence and confidence in his ability to accomplish financial success. Others remarked, however, that Holmes had a hard drive to make money. Some suspected that he was not above dishonest means to acquire it. Indeed, later witnesses observed that, while he was polite, he lacked clear moral principles or convictions. Another feature that almost everyone commented on throughout Mudgett's life were his eyes. Witnesses would say that Holmes could never look a person directly in the eye, which often left people unnerved and distrusting. But rather than devilish defect, Mudgett suffered from a mild case of strabismus, which is commonly known as being cross-eyed. A need to overcome this social prejudice might have led Mudgett to work on his persuasive ability. Beyond this hurdle, Mudgett had striking gray-blue eyes that many others would regard as an attractive quality. While some rather acidic descriptions of Mudgett in his college years would paint him as an uncouth, stinky man, 
He never seemed to have much trouble attracting members of the opposite sex until his arrest. In short, though, there does not appear to be anything especially suspicious about Holmes's childhood except for stories people suddenly remembered once he was a nationally infamous murderer. Life changed for Mudgett at the age of 14 when he inherited a piece of land from the death of his grandfather. Feeling some sense of independence, he began looking for a wife at an age considered very early, even in those days, though his first two courtships came to nothing. By 16, he was working various jobs and as a school teacher when he first met Clara Lovering. Clara was considered very pretty and modest in manner, which is about as much as sources tell us. She, like his other future wives, was devoted to Mudgett and considered him tender-hearted, caring, and determined to make something of himself. Mudgett, for his part, appears to have been enamored with her as well, at least in the beginning. Accounts vary as to how they met, but one says that they encountered each other at a church social where Mudgett challenged another boy for Clara's affections. The ploy worked, and Mudgett became a regular visitor at the Lovering household, where he read regularly to Clara before they married on July 4, 1878, both at the age of 17. The wedding was initially kept secret from their parents, with the two living separately. When they revealed the union, both the Mudgetts and Loverings felt it was a bad deal for Clara, given Mudgett's modest means. But Mudgett was given work as a clerk in her uncle's grocery store. Shortly thereafter, Clara gave birth to their first and only son, Robert Mudgett. While the two still lived separately, Mudgett would walk nine miles every weekend to visit Clara and was generally considered a devoted young husband. But Mudgett had ambitions. He believed that he could make it rich in the world of medicine and quit his job, going to apprentice with Dr. White, where he first participated in human dissection and developed a knack for anatomy. After one year of this, he opted to pursue formal medical studies at Burlington, Vermont, which marked the beginning of his college career and strains on his first marriage. The move for one-term studies at Burlington marked a clear shift in Mudgett's behavior. Perhaps he felt liberated by the relative anonymity of the new town. His roommate at a local boarding house, Fred Engels, had been a fellow Dr. White student, and Mudgett had asked him not to tell others of his marriage. Mudgett had remarked to Clara's cousin that his marriage to a simple rustic like Clara would hold his career back, and his early devotion seems to have vanished. Mudgett's sister, Helen, furthermore asserted that Clara was not smart enough for Herman. At any rate, Ingalls agreed to the secret so long as Mudgett honored his marriage. But Mudgett quickly took to flirting with the landlady's daughter, and Ingalls exposed him. It seems that it was in Burlington that Mudgett first grew his iconic mustache, as he and Ingalls once fought over some mustache wax. A few telling habits emerged at this time. Mudgett began having a morning glass of wine with an older widow at the boarding house each morning, which many suspected was to get a hold of her money. He also conducted many chemical experiments in his room and sharpened his interest in dissection, possibly having stored a dissected a dissected baby cadaver under his bed, which received a strong rebuke from the landlady, as one can only imagine. After his first term, he returned to Gilmanton to earn more money to continue his studies. In this capacity, he renewed his mediocre stint as a school teacher while also apprenticing under a local doctor. One story that came much later said he once showed an amputated foot to his students, 
though his old school superintendent denied it ever happening. In 1882, Herman, Clara, and young Robert moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, for Herman to pursue formal medical training at the University of Michigan. I want to pause and mention here um, that, you know, at this time, for relatively simple rustic people, rural people, to move so far away must have been a really big journey, especially for someone like Clara, who had simple ambitions, and really gives an idea for how mobile people could sometimes be, even in the late 1800s. Most of the funding came from Clara herself, who worked as a dressmaker. The couple began fighting frequently, and it is possible that Herman struck Clara on a number of occasions. The kind, shy boy she had married was gone. Just before his graduation, Clara took Robert and moved back to New Hampshire on her father's advice, which was probably a really good move. Mudgett only saw them a few times before his arrest, and they were effectively separated though no divorce was ever legally obtained, making any of his future marriages illegal. Though he was very poor, Mudgett appears to have enjoyed his time in Ann Arbor. Ironically, he lived on Cemetery Street with other students and seems to have performed his first legal fraud by claiming Michigan as his home state to secure lower tuition, something I imagine we can all relate to today. The chief quality that stands out about his time in medical school was his affinity for dissection, attested to by most of his classmates. He came to work for Dr. William Herdman, the anatomy demonstrator. Mudgett lived in Herdman's house for a time and came to work closely with him in operating the dissection lab. At this time, Mudgett likely assisted Herdman in securing demonstration cadavers on nighttime trips, a morbid but necessary task in that day. Though he was a noted anatomist, accounts diverged on his other academic abilities. Most recalled him as a slow student who stumbled when asked questions, while others noted his sharp attention in classes. It is perhaps impossible to know for certain given his reputation by the time his classmates were questioned. Other accounts say that he was smelly. One classmate claimed Mudgett's nickname was Smegma, or that he was quiet and aloof without much humor. This reputation resulted in general surprise when he was embroiled in a scandal with a woman during his senior year in 1884. Mudgett had apparently been courting his landlady, who was a widow, and had proposed marriage. The pledge was apparently to get her into bed, not an unusual tactic in those days, but when she discovered his marriage to Clara, she was outraged and notified the university. Such misconduct would have prevented his graduation but Dr. Herdman vouched for him, and they let him graduate. Apparently, on the night of his graduation, Mudgett approached Dr. Herdman and told him that the accusations were true. Later, Herdman learned that Mudgett had attempted to steal valuables from his house. And uh, it is worth noting that at the end of uh, Mudgett, or Holmes's life, Dr. Herdman would visit him in prison as well just to see what the man had become. Thus, by the end of his college career, it was clear that Mudgett was willing to falsify his identity, lie, seduce, and steal to advance himself or get what he wanted. Upon graduation in 1884, he moved by himself to Moore's Forks, a small town in upstate New York, to start practicing medicine as a physician and part-time teacher. While not, not much information exists on his teaching career, his time in Moore's Forks marks the one time that Mudgett actually practiced as a physician. 
He would only stay there for about one year, yet he managed to establish quite a strange reputation for himself in that, in that brief space. Many regarded Mudgett as inoffensive and quiet in most respects, but found him to be evasive and deceitful when it came to financial matters. He would frequently borrow money or an item on credit and then refuse to pay, a practice through which, though, which would expand over time. He presented himself as a single man and made many advances on his female patients, proposing marriage on a few occasions. Again, from last episode, whenever I read certain accounts of his life, I just have to chuckle, because while he's made out to be this evil genius, which perhaps he developed into later on, at the same time he just seems desperate to get people to fall into his ploys, proposing marriage all over the place, asking people to take out insurance policies, it's, it's kind of funny. Two interesting medical exploits occurred at this time. In the first one, a widow had sought his help in proving that an old Civil War bullet wound had crippled her deceased husband's health, leading to his death so that she could receive a pension. He performed the autopsy and revealed her suspicions to be correct, but he held the damaged ribs hostage, demanding excessive payment for her to receive them. In the second, Mudgett took advantage of a smallpox outbreak to post as a health board official. He traveled about claiming that vaccinations were mandatory and that he could provide them for 25 cents. The vaccines were placebos. With a mountain of debts piling up, Mudgett decided to flee town without paying rent by scamming a train ticket off a man who thought Mudgett would return to repay him. Mudgett would later recount that starvation was staring me in the face at this time. He journeyed to Norristown, Pennsylvania, where, for the first time, he adopted an alias, Mr. Howard, Jesse James's old alias. Appearing before town officials as a poverty-stricken former Confederate colonel from Texas, I can only imagine the accent that he put on, he declared that he was on the verge of suicide from shame. Officials charitably gave him a position at the local hospital for the insane, though he did not stay there long. He later said that the memories of the insane haunted him. At around this time, he later claimed that he first devised an insurance fraud scheme involving staging a cadaver as having died in an accident. Apparently, he secured three bodies for the scheme, but when it fell through, he left them pickling in some warehouse barrels. In another version, his lawyer suggested that these were the bones discovered in the Chicago Castle cellar. This whole idea that there had been another scheme to commit insurance fraud with fake bodies pops up in about three different ways at three various times. I, for one, don't believe that this scheme started in Pennsylvania. I think he made this up after the fact to add credence to the idea that um, Pitzel's body was actually not his body. But who knows? In 1885, his Midwestern saga began with his first journey to Chicago. Though he took a liking to the bustling city, he ventured on to Minneapolis where he worked as a drugstore clerk from 1885 to 86. It was at this time that he met Murda Zulik Belknap, whose family was living in Minneapolis at the time. She was working as a music store clerk and was a bright and attractive young woman who also taught music. He presented himself as an up-and-coming young doctor who hoped to open his own drugstore in Chicago. To accomplish this goal, he first needed a pharmacology license. Somehow, he passed the exam to do so in Springfield, Illinois, and was registered under the new name 
Henry Harry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes. This was the name that Murden knew him as, and the one that would be propelled to fame when he came under suspicion in 1894. From here on out, it is the name I will refer to him by. In 1886, Holmes secretly attempted to secure divorce from Clara under his birth name. To do so, he claimed that she had committed adultery in Ann Arbor with a man who could not be proven to exist. He also claimed that their son, Robert, was living with him and might have briefly, briefly taken the boy to live with him in Chicago while Clara still did not know of the lawsuit. She also attempted to secure a separation on grounds of abandonment, but both efforts failed. They remained legally married, though Robert returned home to Clara and Holmes presented himself as a completely single man in Chicago and to Murda. By the end of the year, he had married Murda in a ceremony that was likely staged. Murda truly believed that she was legally married to him, though there was no legal record of the union. As in his prior marriage, Holmes came off as a loving and devoted husband to Murda. Even after his execution, she still went by the name Murda Holmes. By 1887, they had purchased a large empty lot on the corner of 63rd and Wallace Streets in the rapidly growing Chicago suburb of Inglewood. The lot was registered in Murda's name, which inaugurated Holmes's tradition of listing all of his properties and businesses in anyone's name but his own, though many such property holders were oblivious to their ownership. There's no telling, really, if Murda knew she owned it or not. She certainly didn't seem to know that she actually owned the house she was living in whenever Holmes was caught. Holmes was about to realize his dreams of becoming a prosperous, if dishonest, businessman. It is also worth noting at this time that Holmes was still in his mid-twenties. He would be about 35 when he was executed, and he would only begin his verifiable career as a killer in the last five years of his life. At this point in Holmes's life, around 1886 or 87, he was attempting to establish his own drugstore. Though he managed to acquire the large, empty lot on 63rd, he also had his eye on the pre-existing drugstore that stood across the street from it, which was owned by one Dr. Holton. A story is always repeated, begun by Herbert Asbury in his book, Jim of the Prairie, of Holmes waltzing into the pharmacy of Dr. and Mrs. Holton. The doctor is sick and elderly. Mrs. Holton is desperate for help. Accordingly, Holmes comes to manage the store, likely charming the old lady with the tip of his bowler hat. The couple disappears and is implied to have been murdered by Holmes, while Holmes claims that Mrs. Holton sold him the store and moved out west. In reality, the Holtons were a young couple, and the store was owned by Dr. Elizabeth Sanders Holton, who was a University of Michigan alumnus who might have already known Holmes, and it's worth noting that she must have been one of the first practicing female doctors in America at that time. She and her husband lived well into the 20th century, and were still in the neighborhood when Holmes was arrested, but never were interviewed by reporters. It's possible that she sold the store to spend more time with her new child. Her young daughter Abigail died, unfortunately, in 1895 of gastritis. Holmes bought the store, apparently legitimately, and Dr. Holton got paid, making her one of his rare lucky business associates to strike a fair deal. The true story, which I first encountered in Adam Selzer's book, highlights the tendency among home storytellers to repeat almost blindly whatever story has been told before. 
Such accounts are readily believed because many writers and many readers enter the story already believing that Holmes is a natural-born serial killer whose prime motivation in life is the destruction and torture of human lives, not something more conventional like greed or ruthless ambition. Chicago, and Inglewood especially, were exploding in population and development. New gas lights and streetcars were introduced, and new houses, businesses, and neighbors were arriving almost daily. In this frothy business environment, Holmes contracted to build a two-story building with space for retail outlets on the first floor and a set of apartments on the second floor. Despite common tellings, it was not designed with the World's Fair in mind, which was many years in the future, nor was it jam-packed with secret passages. It was designed by architects Charles Berger and Edward Galliner, who had designed a similar building in the area. Etna Iron and Steel handled construction, and it was built with a hidden staircase and a trapdoor in an upstairs bathroom, as well as a few hidden compartments between the floors and walls. But these features were known to drugstore employees and usually used for storage. That said, we will see that the storage was not always of legal goods. The building did, however, have many strange extra doors on the second floor that created multiple routes for traversing that floor. Holmes moved his drugstore into the first floor and moved into an upstairs apartment with Murda and her mother, Lucy. Lucy Belknap appears to have split time living in town with the Holmeses and with her husband, John Belknap. Though that relationship there is, is a, a tip of an iceberg I'd like to explore because Lucy is clearly still married to John Belknap but seems to spend all of her time with Murda while John Belknap seems to live in Minnesota. Not sure how that worked. Murder would give birth to her and Holmes's daughter, Lucy Theodate Holmes, in 1889. This new Lucy was named after Holmes's mother, though Holmes's mother does not seem to have known she existed. This Lucy was Holmes's second and last known child, who, like her unknown half-brother Robert, would go on to live a long life. The other outlets would be rented to various stores that came and went, while the other apartments were let out to tenants, some of whom worked in the building. Holmes refused to pay either the architects or Etna Iron, which led to lawsuits in 1888. Holmes claimed variously that he was not legally responsible since Murda or Lucy Belknap owned the land, or that the construction contract was void on account of one defective beam. Because of confusions over ownership, Holmes's constant evasion, and a lackadaisical police force, the builders would struggle for years to receive payment. Though he might have made a prosperous living as an honest businessman given his location and skills, Holmes chose another route. Holmes engaged in numerous swindles, plots, frauds, and petty thefts that, over his time in Chicago, amounted to over 60 lawsuits. He would often simply borrow money or rent an item and refuse to pay or return the sum or item in question. He would rent bicycles or music boxes and sell them off without returning them. He bought a safe on credit and bolted it to the walls so it could not be repossessed. As time went on, the amount of money he borrowed and the scale of his scams increased. He took out several mortgages on the building under different names. Later, it would be discovered that he stowed unpaid-for merchandise in the building's secret compartments so that they could not be repossessed. He largely evaded punishment since most of his property was not owned in his name. 
though it created tension with his mother-in-law, who he'd apparently joked about placing in the nearly soundproof safe. On paper, Holmes owned almost nothing, and no account book was ever discovered that could reveal exactly how much cash he had access to and when. Two of his more notable swindles involved a scheme to sell mineral water from a supposed artesian well. Instead, and one has to admire this, he tapped the city's water main, discolored it, and sold it off as a sort of patent medicine. Additionally, he claimed to have made a generator that could turn water into flammable gas. If he could really do that, he would uh, be up there with the greats. Again, he tapped the gas company's main line and passed it off as as his own production. He would later brag about these schemes, though neighbors testified that both had been discovered and harmed his reputation in the area. Holmes sold the drugstore off twice, once to Ned Connor in 1890, who we shall discuss more fully in a moment, then bought it back and resold to A.L. Jones at a swindle by inflating the price of the business. It later passed to Dr. Edward Robinson, who owned it at the time of Holmes's arrest. Holmes evidently found it more profitable to pawn off his businesses than to work them himself. One of Holmes's creditors and part owner of the building, John de Bruyle, whose name, again, eludes me, collapsed out front of the building in 1891, and a jeweler who worked at the building claimed he saw Holmes poison him on the spot, though this came several years later. Either way, de Bruyle died while Holmes's debts lived on. Throughout his swindles and schemes, Holmes demonstrated a compulsion to brag about his exploits to others after the fact. Though his schemes were usually discovered, he felt a need to show his superiority by having tricked or fooled someone. Sometimes he admitted it to their face, as in the case of Dr. Herdman, while at other times he would gloat, he would gloat to delivery boys about his ability to rip off the municipal government. One such scheme that would reappear during the murder investigations was Holmes's Warner Glass Binning Company, which was owned on paper by an unwitting furniture merchant that Holmes had been doing business with. During this venture, which Ned Connor told newspapers all about years later, Holmes made a big show of building a series of furnaces and fuel tanks in the cellar. Though the entire operation failed as a business proposition, Holmes used it to attract investors. With their money in hand, the business would fold and the furnace was done away with. Since Holmes did not formally own the business, creditors were at a loss. The furnace, though absent during the investigations, was often speculated to have been Holmes' own personal crematoria, though there is no clear evidence to suggest this use. One of Holmes's biggest Chicago schemes was the ABC Copier Company, which operated out of a downtown office to add credibility. He bought, out, I say bought in quotation marks, out half ownership from one Thomas Bryan, a leading Chicago citizen and general commissioner for the World's Fair. Bryan never got paid, and Holmes abused his name to secure credit and investors. The company, at one point owned on paper by Holmes's janitor, employed young Mary Kelly as a secretary. Holmes had her become a notary public and paid her to notarize documents without reading them. The company was supposed to sell rights to salesmen to sell copying machines in various locations and was alleged to make good money, but Holmes continued to borrow more money and never paid debts despite the mounting lawsuits. It was this business that Holmes pretended to be working for when he dragged his third wife 
Georgiana across the northern states in 1894. Along the way, Holmes hired helpers like Benjamin Pitzel, Patrick Quinlan, and Joe Owens. All of these men appear to have begun service for Holmes as performers of odd jobs, often moving items for his various business schemes. Pitzel appears to have been the first hire, and perhaps once Holmes saw he didn't mind illegal business, came to be a sort of right hand for Holmes, overseeing some projects himself. Quinlan and Owens were both brought on as handymen and janitors, though Owens was only employed briefly in 1893. Quinlan worked for Holmes much longer, and, while he does not seem to have had a hand in any of the murderous activities, likely engaged in a few illegal deals himself, which later would cast a lot of suspicion on him, much to his chagrin. One of Holmes's creditors, William Green, was on to him. Holmes had failed to pay Green back for a $3,000 loan to buy glycerin for the non-existent copiers. The Inglewood building was now under the name of one Kate Durkee, a friend of Murda's, though she lived far away and was unaware of such proceedings. So, Green had his men break into the building to remove items, including a furnace, to recoup some of the losses. Holmes also sued Julia Connor, wife of Ned Connor, for a loan he'd made to her so she could buy the drugstore. As it happened, he was also having an affair with her. By the end of 1891, she and her daughter Pearl would disappear. At this point, we turn to the discussion of Holmes's career as a murderer. Up until now, Holmes's primary occupation was the creation of phony businesses so as to borrow large sums of money without ever repaying. But now his various intrigues and schemes would lead him into complicated relationships with deadly outcomes. Holmes's uncaring manipulation of human beings would escalate beyond taking their money to taking their lives. Holmes has long been categorized as a serial killer who murdered to satisfy an inner desire or sexual compulsion, but these conclusions are highly speculative and are not supported by any concrete evidence. There were whispers after his arrest of mysterious deaths from his childhood, college career, and early days in Chicago, but the first of the killings that can be definitively tied to him began in December of 1891. At each turn, he appears to have killed out of a perceived necessity, or at times, out of convenience. Victims either presented a danger to his deceitful lifestyle, or had something that he wanted. A ruthless killer he undoubtedly was, as we shall see. But the way he operated, the crimes he committed, and the reasons he did so were quite different from what is often said. With this observation in mind, we now turn our attention to the arrival of the Connor family at Holmes's building. Ned Connor was a jeweler from Iowa who had recently arrived in Chicago with his young family in 1889 looking for work. With him were his wife, Julia, and their young daughter, Pearl. Unfortunately for Ned, he quickly found work at Holmes's new drugstore working at the jewelry counter. His family stayed in one of the upstairs apartments just down the hall from the Holmes family. As Ned gained experience, and perhaps as Holmes became interested in other business ventures, Holmes turned over management of the drugstore to Ned. In addition, Julia was hired as a clerk in the store to manage the books. Julia was young and attractive, and Holmes apparently enjoyed having her around. Witnesses later reported that the two flirted often and engaged in intimate conversation when neither Ned nor Murda were around. 
Ned and Julia also experienced marital problems. They argued frequently, sometimes yelling in public, and both of them grappled with jealousy. Unknown to either Ned or Murda at the time, Holmes and Julia had begun an illicit affair. One later witness said that Holmes had even installed an electric buzzer to warn him when Murda was coming downstairs. In 1890, as the Connor marriage was falling apart, Holmes convinced Ned to buy the drugstore from him, which he did at a marked-up price. The business was not doing well, and Julia decided to formally separate from Ned. She retained custody of Pearl and stayed in their old apartment. Ned opted to sell the business back to Holmes at a lower price and left to find work as a watchmaker, though he still had occasional business with Holmes even after he pieced together his affair with his ex-wife. I will comment and say that Ned was not a particularly skilled businessman. Holmes even convinced Julia to pay him so that she could be part owner of the store, though whether she was a real owner or just another puppet owner stooge is unclear. At any rate, in 1891, Holmes opted to move his household with Murda and Lucy to a new house on Honoré Street in the up-and-coming suburb of Wilmette to the north of town. This would keep his respectable family out of his daily business and dalliances, as well as give him another place to hang his hat when convenient. Around the same time, Holmes hired Ned's sister, Gertie Connor, a typist for the ABC Copier Company, and was set up in the downtown office, where Mary Kelly also worked. Holmes offered to help her go through business college, where she allegedly fell in love with a young man. Holmes apparently made advances toward her, which she declined. She subsequently left and went home to Iowa shortly thereafter, where she soon died of a heart condition. During the later murder investigations, rumors swirled over the possibilities that Holmes had somehow killed her, whether her love interest was real or not, Ned said he was, or whether Holmes had forced himself on her, prompting her to flee in shame. With her, while her relationship status is uncertain, it seems impossible that Holmes murdered her. In July 1891, Holmes took Julia and Pearl on a Julia and Pearl on a brief vacation to the rural farm of Patrick Quinlan, who was a Holmes employee at this time. Uh, why Quinlan, the owner of a successful farm, would also work as a poorly paid hired hand for Holmes was later a topic of speculation. At any rate, he kept quiet about the visit around town, and Murda never knew of it. Cora, Quinlan's daughter, became friends with Pearl at this time and would later miss her company. On Christmas Eve, 1891, Julia told a fellow tenant, Mrs. Crow, that she and Cora would be attending her sister's wedding, but would only take a few clothes, leaving her valuables in her bureau. Surprisingly, (laughs) surprisingly, they appeared to have left that night and were never seen again. Her clothes and possessions were left behind as if she'd left in a hurry. Holmes acted as if they were still alive and wrote to Ned and Julia's family asking about her if he were looking as if he were looking for her. Her parents' response indicated that the wedding was real and had occurred a few days after her disappearance, but that she had never attended, which surprised her family. When Cora asked about Pearl and Julia that Christmas, she was oddly told that Julia had married a man and moved to California. Questions about Julia and Pearl would only be raised again seriously during the investigation of 1895, 
but in hindsight it appears clear that the two were murdered by Holmes and that the child bones discovered in the cellar were likely pearls. Before I comment on that further, I want to remark that the fact that her disappearance came and went um, largely without notice highlights a feature of the 19th century where uh, tragic as it was, people could get into trouble or die or uh, seeking a different life. People could get up and move and you may not know where they went. You know, you couldn't just mail or do GPS or have a phone or anything like that. And so to me, it just strikes at the human tragedy that these people's families, whether it be her mom and dad or sister or whoever, just these people vanish from their lives and they're kind of at a loss as to what to do. And Holmes definitely played into that uh, possibility. Based on the known facts and on Holmes's later confessions, unreliable as they are, it seems probable that Julia had gotten pregnant by Holmes and that Holmes had attempted an abortion, which is why she told friends that she would be away for a while but not take much with her. The pregnancy would have exposed Holmes as an adulterer and ruined Julia's reputation. Whether he intended to kill her or not cannot be known. My personal belief is that he did not mean to kill her, otherwise he would have thought of a much better excuse. Rather, he botched the operation and had to cover it up. Pearl was now a liability and had to be done away with. If his later crimes are any indication, I suspect she was drugged with something like chloroform. The fact that he was able to get away with it without much trouble might have emboldened him to kill intentionally in the future. Ned seems to have thought that she skipped town with another man and moved on, remarrying him uh, and beginning a new family back in Iowa. Ned remarried is what I meant to say. Almost as soon as Julia and Pearl had vanished at the end of 1891, a new young lady emerged on the scene in 1892, Emmeline Sagrand. Emmeline had come to Chicago in 1892 after working at the Keeley Institute in Dwight, Illinois, which was devoted to Dr. Keeley's gold cure for alcoholism, a kind of patent medicine typical of the era. Holmes hired her on as a typist assistant, likely on the pretext that he had begun the Silver Ash Institute, a snake oil imitation of the gold cure, and could use her experience. He also likely hired her because she was young and very pretty, much like Mary Kelly, Gertie Connor, and Julia Connor. All accounts of Emmeline's time in Chicago are conflicting, though there are some common points of agreement. Emmeline never stayed at one residence long, often spending nights out. She and Holmes spent time together inside and outside the office, and he frequently showered her with gifts. It was clear to many that she was engaged in a romantic relationship. Later testimony cannot be trusted in all cases, but it seems likely that Holmes took her on various trips, possibly even across the lake to Michigan, and likely spent the night with her in various places. She was new to the sights of the city, and now this wealthy young businessman was showing her the time of her life. Sure, he was married and it was risky, but he was tender with her, told her that he loved her, and might have proposed to leave his wife and marry her. It is entirely possible that she gave Holmes a portrait of herself as a gift, which, she ha which he had in his possession when he was arrested in 1894. Toward the end of 1892, Emmeline began telling various acquaintances that she was engaged to be married to one Robert Phelps, who appears never to have existed, though she did not mention this to anyone who knew Holmes, which I think is telling. Instead, she told this to her landlady and family members. 
She might have even called Holmes's Roberts when he visited her at her boarding house. Emmeline disappeared suddenly in December of 1892, likely murdered by Holmes. Holmes, it seems, went through the trouble of printing wedding cards and maintaining the fiction that she was living as Mrs. Phelps before leaving for Europe. He also posted a wedding announcement in the newspapers and forged a letter to her father pretending to be her. His letters to Emmeline's parents are especially disturbing, much as Julia's before. He feigned a sincere concern for her well-being and said that he'd made efforts to locate her to no avail. She was never seen or heard from again, and few suspected Holmes at the time, though that would change after the arrest. Based on what information is available, it seems likely that her case was almost an exact repeat of Julia's one year earlier. Emmeline likely became pregnant, which would have ruined her reputation if Holmes did not somehow leave his wife and marry her. Holmes, having been in this situation before, likely proposed an abortion by his own hand. Emmeline's affection for Holmes and her general happiness faded at this time as attested by women who knew her. When one of them asserted that Holmes could not make do without her in an attempt to lift her spirits, Emmeline said that she was sure he could. Where I believe the situation was different from Julia's, however, is that Holmes likely killed her intentionally, whether with a botched abortion or chloroform poisoning. He was ready with an elaborate plan to explain her marriage and disappearance and seemed simply to have grown tired of Emmeline now that she was pregnant. He enjoyed the pursuit and conquest, but now that the matter threatened to disrupt his life in serious ways, he got rid of the problem. The story about Holmes suffocating Emmeline in a safe has no supporting evidence and was just one of many lurid theories proposed by investigators and hack journalists in 1895. It only makes sense in a scenario where Holmes killed for sport, not for convenience. This is not to say with certainty that Holmes never tortured his victims, merely that there is no evidence for it. One question that emerges at this point is an obvious one. What did he do with the bodies? Traditional accounts, following the speculation at the time, have suggested that in line with, the, with his love for dissection, Holmes cut open and mutilated the bodies for his personal gratification, sometimes burying them, incinerating them, or, as according to Myron Chapel, selling them to skeleton articulators. Believing, as I do, that the Chapel story was a load of baloney, and that the furnace was probably gone by the time of the later murders, he likely found more conventional means to dispose of the bodies. Selling bodies to articulators while fitting Holmes' love of making a quick buck would have been very risky. It could be, based on what he did do to Howard Pitzel later, that he burned the bodies in a furnace or stove, though there is little direct evidence for that. Based on the cellar bones, he probably dismembered bodies when possible to make them easier for disposal. Julia and Pearl might have been buried in the cellar in beds of quicklime since he was rushed, while later victims were taken off-site when he had more time to plan their deaths. This practice would explain why so few bones were found in the cellar. I tend to believe that he placed the bodies in trunks and sank them in Lake Michigan. Witnesses frequently state that Holmes was assisted in loading heavy trunks out of the building to be shipped off, and he later claimed that he helped Minnie Williams dispose of her sister's body by sinking it in Lake Michigan. While we will see that most of his claims about Minnie Williams were likely false, it is revealing that he considered sinking a body in a trunk a reasonable way to dispose of one. 
In the end, we can only act as speculators ourselves. All of this discussion of murder and bodies, however, brings us to one of the most prominent features of the Holmes legend, the World's Fair Hotel. In 1893, Chicago hosted the World's Columbian Exposition, or World's Fair, that, com that commemorated the roughly 400 years since Columbus's discovery of the New World. It was meant to draw tourists from all over the country and around the world to see the many technological and cultural achievements America had to offer. It was decked out with gigantic temporary buildings and statues of the Beaux-Arts style. It featured landscaping designed by the famous Frederick Law Olmsted, complete with electric gondolas and the world's first Ferris wheel. The corn dog was introduced. And most important for the Holmes story, it attracted millions of people who had never been to Chicago before. The most famous Holmes accounts have made the fair and Holmes' exploitation of it the centerpiece of his career as a serial killer. The Inglewood Building, which was relatively close to Jackson Park, the site of the fair, is depicted as having been built with the intention of serving as a hotel to fair visitors. Holmes, knowing that the tourists would, have locals, would not have locals to miss them, could rob and dispatch them in his carefully designed murder factory. Gas piped into rooms, death chamber vaults, sliding walls, trapdoors, and other such devices allowed him to kill at his leisure before disposing of bodies in his giant furnace or selling the bodies to articulators like Chapel. The problem, mentioned above, however, was that the building was built over four years before the fair and functioned as a business outlet with a few apartments on the second floor. But, as Holmes enthusiasts will already know, Holmes did in fact add a third floor to the building. Beginning in 1892, this third floor was to be outfitted with many rooms and passages, as well as an extra private office for Holmes, which might have been built solely with the World's Fair in mind. It is doubtful, however, that Holmes ever intended to operate a hotel in the building, and there is no evidence that he ever did. Instead, the third floor, like his other business experiments, functioned primarily as a way to sucker in investors and to secure more furniture and merchandise without paying for it. It was built quickly, cheaply, and poorly. The alias he used to secure credit for the construction and the new sets of rooms was Hiram S. Campbell. Creditors believed that the traffic from the fair would make the rooms profitable and were initially ready and willing to lend. One of his favorite tricks at this time was to buy loads of furniture on credit, fail to pay for it, and hide the furniture in the building's secret chambers, which increased with the shoddy addition to avoid repossession. This worked until a former laborer showed collectors a secret room behind wallpaper that resulted in creditors scouring the entire building. The story ended up in the Chicago Tribune in 1893. Again, collecting debts was difficult because Holmes's own name appeared nowhere and the mysterious Mr. Campbell could never be located. As Holmes continued to buy everything on credit, he also took out various insurance policies on the building of furniture. The only bills he usually paid were insurance premiums, which, in the event of fire, often paid out more than he could make by honest business. Partners Delos Madison and Charles Gove contracted to lease the entire building to run their own hotel, which was the closest thing to a World's Fair hotel the building ever witnessed. They rapidly discovered Holmes' shadiness, the hidden rooms, randomly appearing furniture, and the Tribune article. They broke the lease without ever paying Holmes, and the hotel remained empty without any signs of having hosted guests. 
I do wonder what it felt like for Holmes to finally not have someone pay him. Holmes himself was moving his focus away from the building and had built a house for Murda and Lucy up in Wilmette. Curiously, the building was now owned in the name of Minnie Rayford Williams. Of all of Holmes's deluded paramours, Minnie Williams stands out as the most mysterious. Minnie Williams was born around 1867 in Mississippi and had an older brother, Baldwin, and a younger sister, Nanny. They were all orphaned with the separate deaths of their parents in 1872. Minnie was taken to live with her uncle, Dr. Williams, in Dallas, Texas, while Nanny stayed in Mississippi with one Reverend Dr. Black. The two would not see each other again until 1889, and Minnie would not see her brother until about 1886. Baldwin would go to work in Denver at the Arkansas Valley Smelter, where he would ultimately die from an accident in 1892. From Dr. Williams, Minnie inherited land and property worth about $10,000 around Fort Worth, and she studied public speaking at the local academy in Mansfield. She would go on to study at the Boston Conservatory and evidently had some small successes in stage acting in Boston before reconnecting with her long-lost sister. After moving Nanny into her Mansfield home, Minnie returned east to study at the New England Conservatory. Minnie was regarded as bright, willful, and a very engaging and talented speaker, though she was not regarded as attractive and tended to avoid men. One rascal even called her a man-hater. Minnie began asking for more money from her estate through John Massey, the estate trustee, and she started her own theatrical business in 1891 that failed. Though a skilled singer and orator, Minnie was not very good at acting. She resolved in January of 1893 to settle down in Chicago and make an independent living for herself. Stories vary as to when she met Holmes, with some placing it around an 1888-1889 trip uh, back east, Holmes's trip back east, but he claimed to have met her in 1893 at an employment office. I think that's more probable, personally. By February of 1893, she was hired as a stenographer for the Campbell Yates Company, Holmes's then primary shell company. Many, while not typical of Holmes's previous female interests in her homely appearance, was attractive to Holmes for other reasons. Holmes would have soon discovered that she owned valuable lands in Texas and that she was entitled to an additional few thousand dollars from her brother's life insurance policy that she had not yet collected since the claimant needed to travel to Colorado. Mrs. Holmes was now at a safe distance in Wilmette, and it is unclear whether Minnie ever learned of Holmes's other families or of his true identity. I personally doubt that she ever did. By spring of 1893, Minnie wrote to Nanny that she was engaged to one Harry Gordon, another Holmes alias, who claimed to be a wealthy doctor. Shortly thereafter, she wrote that she had married him. It seems unlikely that Minnie could have been totally unaware that Gordon was a false name, given how tied up in Holmes's business she would have had to be as his secretary, and Dr. Black claimed that Minnie had known him as far back as 1889, which, lends, which kind of builds into this bigger possibility we'll talk about. Some historians use this information, combined with her prior aversion to men, as evidence for her complicity in some of his schemes as a sort of partner in crime. Holmes certainly claimed that she was his willing assistant in fraud during his trial, and later identified her as the one responsible for the deaths of the Pitzel children. 
Most likely, however, she was a gullible victim who believed that she'd finally found love, or at least a man with money that could support her dreams. She invited Nanny to come and stay with them and travel to Europe. Nanny arrived in Chicago in June of 1893. Minnie quickly became involved in Holmes' schemes, standing in as official owner for the Wilmette property, whether she knew it was for Murda and Lucy or not. She also withdrew more money from her estate and took out a loan, all presumably to fund Holmes' ventures. It is possible that Minnie might have only been with Holmes for selfish reasons herself, there are some sparse accounts of Minnie knowingly having an illicit relationship with Holmes and being domineering toward him, even swearing at him in public. Perhaps they were both trying to scam each other. At any rate, Holmes would prove the dirtier rotten scoundrel. Holmes moved Minnie and Nanny into an apartment on Wrightwood Avenue, where the apparently married couple lived briefly as Mr. and Mrs. Gordon. Nanny reported that Brother Harry was one of the nicest men she'd ever met. She was mistaken. Much of what is known of Nanny comes from a letter sent to her aunt, but Holmes later claimed that it was a forgery sent by Minnie. In the letter, Nanny comes off as a pious, simple, and somewhat naive young woman. The letter was written on July 4, 1893, which was the day Holmes went on to have an affair with Nanny and rode the Ferris wheel while Minnie went on a day trip to Milwaukee. It also would have been his wedding anniversary with Clara Lovering, uh, not that he honored that, and also obviously the birthday of America. Their landlord saw the two women taking a walk the next morning, July 5th. This was the last time Nanny was ever seen, and it was only one month after her arrival in Chicago. Minnie was claimed to have been seen a few times later, but these claims were never verified. On July 6th, Minnie could not be located, and a loan was allegedly taken out uh, taken out by her to be made payable to one Horace A. Williams, who did not exist. Meanwhile, Holmes was making plans to go to Fort Worth and claim Minnie's property. In all likelihood, Holmes had murdered the two sisters and sunk their bodies in Lake Michigan. Later, he would claim that Minnie had murdered Nanny out of jealousy and that he had helped her cover it up and escape only to be betrayed by Minnie. The story was likely just another of Holmes's many lies, but it does at least suggest that a new nanny was dead. With the Williams sisters out of the picture, Holmes plotted to set fire to the third floor of the hotel in August of 1893. He removed all furniture and valuables, including even the brass doorknobs and Julia Connor's furniture. He was absent when the fire was detected in the middle of the night and the second floor tenants evacuated. Joe Owens, then the resident janitor, named those present that night. The scanty list of names again indicates that the building never functioned as a hotel. It's a key point that Adam Selzer brings out very well. Holmes likely never received any money. The building's main mortgage was held by one Frank Chandler, and the building was caught in so many controversies that lawsuits dragged on for years. The by the time of their conclusion, it was discovered that Hiram Campbell, the policyholder, did not exist. Holmes would dodge investigators for a while before leaving town. Owens would later say that Holmes had put the Williams sisters in hiding to avoid the insurance companies and that he had, been suspe that he had seen suspicious activities. Holmes and Pitzel had been moving trunks from the building, possibly to remove bodies, and Owens had seen Holmes burning something on the third floor that smelled terribly. Holmes's creditors were now all catching on. 
and he was becoming desperate for money and fearing the collapse of his myriad schemes. He threatened neighbor John Nichols with a revolver for making him pay to have rubble cleared with a chute, and, asked the build, and he asked the building's resident druggist for two months' rent immediately in the place of three. Twenty-five of his creditors turned to the Lafayette Merchant... Or I guess in Chicago it's called Lafayette, I'm not really sure. Lafayette Mercantile Association, a collection uh, company under George Chamberlain, to hold Holmes to his many debts. Holmes was called into two meetings on November 17th and 21st, 1893, where he was faced with restitution or imminent arrest. At first he offered the deeds to some properties under one Kate Durkee's name, but an intentional clerical error brought them back on the, on the 21st, where they demanded cash or arrest. When the creditors were discussing options privately, Holmes slipped out of the window into the hallway and escaped. Holmes left Chicago and, though he would stop in occasionally, never lived there again permanently. Chamberlain, responsible in some way for bringing Holmes to account, began to speculate that Holmes had committed murder. Holmes was a prolific and bold con artist, but had mixed successes. His sprawling web of interconnected obligations of liens, mortgages, promissory notes, and deed transferals was almost doomed to collapse. One mortgage holder did not even know who to sue when payments were missed. Oddly, only one person even accused Holmes of murder in this period, and that particular accusation was incorrect. Accounts of the two men later discovered as Holmes' possible accomplices, Benjamin Pitzel and Patrick Quinlan, appear only briefly in legal records. A few key developments that don't appear in the legal records through 1893 and early 1894 are some shady things behind the scenes such as mysterious trunks described by delivery men, which might have contained bodies, and Holmes' courtship of an Indiana schoolteacher. He did all of this while building a home for his wife and daughter and pretending to be married to Minnie Williams. Georgiana Yoke was a young schoolteacher from Indiana who was tall, blonde, and by most accounts, very attractive in a simple and kind way. Quiet but commanding when she chose to speak. Some witnesses said that her deep blue eyes were exceptionally large and pronounced, which some historians believe might have been from Graves' disease, putting her in company with Holmes's own strabismus. She had moved to Chicago in early 1893, where she worked in her uncle's department store, and, later, in a store at the World's Fair. She likely met Holmes at the fair, and they began a courtship of sorts, and she was seen about town with him, though unknown to his Inglewood associates. He went by Henry Maysfield ha- Mansfield Howard with her, though he'd explained that he had previously gone by H.H. H. Holmes. He was only using his current name to satisfy a bizarre stipulation in his uncle's will, who had died recently and left him land in Texas, which in reality belonged to Minnie. She knew vaguely of Murda, but did not believe her to be his legal wife, which was true in a sense. Holmes visited her family at her grandmother's funeral and was well-received by her mother in December of 1893. She traveled with Holmes in January of 1894 to Denver, where they were wed on January 17th, which was officially recorded. There, Holmes claimed and received a large portion of the insurance money from Baldwin Williams' death in the name of Minnie. The two then moved to Texas, where Holmes set about attempting to claim Minnie's property with the assistance of Ben Pitzel. 
Holmes went by, by O.C. Pratt while he was there, explaining to Georgiana that cattle rustlers and squatters on a ranch he claimed to own would attempt to kill him if they knew that he was H.M. Howard. She accepted these stories and appeared to be devoted to Holmes and he to her, likely more than any of his previous lovers. By this time, Ben Pitzel was working as Holmes's primary business partner outside of Chicago, and it is worth providing a bit of background information not presented in Part 1. Benjamin Pitzel, born in Illinois in 1856 and married to Carrie Pitzel, was a struggling, drunkard, and a one-time inventor of a special coal bin with five children. He had the misfortune of falling into business with Holmes in the early 1890s. More than anyone else, Pitzel chose to engage willingly in a number of Holmes' illegal schemes, though he seems also to have fallen unwittingly into attempts by Holmes to take advantage of him. His role had advanced beyond odd jobs in 1893 when he went to Indiana and Ohio without telling his wife and began buying suits with fake checks in a scam devised by Holmes. He was arrested in October, but bailed out by Holmes, who attempted to use the favor as leverage to acquire Pitzel's house, though Pitzel's attorney blocked this. Uh, Pitzel really should have listened to his attorney in the big picture. By the time Holmes left Chicago, Pitzel had a life insurance policy on himself for $10,000, which he intended to claim by faking his death. Holmes was paying the premiums in the fall of 1893. Holmes directed Pitzel to go to Fort Worth ahead of his own arrival, and Pitzel brought his son Howard along with him. Holmes arrived in Fort Worth in early 1894 using the name of Pratt, staying in a few different hotels and apartments with his third wife, Georgiana. Pitzel was operating under the name of Benton Lyman and had presented a forged deed of sale transferring one of Minnie's properties for one dollar. Pratt and Lyman set about constructing a near copy of the Inglewood building on the, new, on the new lot, replete with odd compartments and passages, though about twice as large as the original. Holmes repeated his pattern of buying nearly all materials and labor on credit, as well as performing a number of bicycle and horse swindles. Once the building was mostly complete, outsiders were barred from entry and only a few workers were allowed in with much of the work being done by Pitzel and Patrick Quinlan, the Englewood janitor who'd been brought down to work. Just as all of his outstanding debts were coming due and people were becoming suspicious, Holmes borrowed thousands of dollars against the property and left town by the end of April 1894. No one ever resided in the new building. Deputy Sheriff Ray of Fort Worth was sent to investigate and ended up in Chicago, where he learned much about Holmes's multiple lives, but he could not locate Holmes. By that time, Holmes was in St. Louis under another name and in jail. In June of 1894, Holmes relocated to St. Louis with Georgiana under the old name of H.M. Howard, while Pitzel relocated his family to St. Louis under the name of Brown. Holmes bought the mortgage for a drugstore on 14th and North Market Street from one AP guest with the Merrill Drug Company as the mortgage holder. The mortgage was not immediately reported by Doran at Howard's request, uh, with Doran being the, uh, the actual mortgage sort of lender. Uh, Holmes then went about buying supplies and goods on credit as per usual. Guests had even been given shares of the Campbell Yates Company in payment. 
Meanwhile, Pitzel took out a mortgage on the same property, allegedly buying it from Holmes. Again, because the mortgage had not been repeated or uh, reported publicly, people were willing to give the money. The two immediately began to pack up. When a Merrill Company salesman found the shop closed, the authorities were notified and Holmes was arrested for the first time with $400 of goods bought on false credit. Holmes initially secured a bond for $500, but guests tipped off the bondsman and Holmes was rearrested just before boarding a train to Chicago. Georgiana, furious and believing Howard to be innocent, again, Howard as she knew him, retrieved deeds for land from her family home in Indiana and gave it to Holmes' lawyer, who she believed, who believed that they were good, though they were from Mindy's property, and he raised the new $800 bond. Holmes then took Georgiana and headed for New York and on to Philadelphia to work out the details for his greatest caper yet, faking the death of Ben Pitzel to collect his life insurance. During his stint in prison, Holmes had used the same alias that Jesse James had used, Mr. Howard. He was put into prison alongside semi-famous train robber Marion Hedgepeth, who had robbed many trains, including one in 1891, in the same spot that Jesse James had. In a fit of braggadocious stupidity, Holmes divulged his plan to commit insurance fraud by faking Pistol's death. Hedgepeth also claimed that he had connected Holmes to a crooked lawyer, Jephthah Howe, who had been Hedgepeth's lawyer, and that Holmes offered to let Hedgepeth into the scheme. Hedgepeth later claimed that he could tell Holmes was likely to kill him if he agreed, but this came long after all the other murderous allegations. In Philadelphia, Holmes set up with Georgiana in the house of Dr. Jane Alcorn, again another female doctor who Holmes has a knack for bumping into, and claimed to be restarting his copier machine contracting work. Georgiana was completely ignorant of all of his illegal schemes. Pitzel came to Philadelphia as well, telling his family that it was part of some lumber work. He went by the name B.F. Perry and set up an innocuous patent dealer business while also evidently making cleaning powders in his apartment. His initial reason for being there was to pull off the insurance fraud scheme, and he had hinted at this to his daughter, Desi. It seems Pitzel got cold feet and had planned to leave town for one reason or another, and Holmes had decided to execute the plan immediately. Holmes told Georgiana that his business was concluded and to tell Dr. Alcorn they were going to Harrisburg. While she was finishing packing on September 1st, Holmes went to Pitzel's apartment and, presumably after getting him drunk, drugged him to, drugged Pitzel to death with chloroform, which would have been easy with his medical knowledge. He then staged the body to look as if Pitzel had lit a pipe while working with benzene, an explosive, and that it had exploded, killing him. This was badly done. Holmes left town for Indiana with Georgiana before heading on to see Pitzel's family in St. Louis, hoping that no news had spread. It is at this point, with, Pitzel's, with Pitzel dead and Holmes plotting to collect the insurance money, that we rejoin the story begun in Part 1. A short summary of events that followed will suffice. Holmes assured Carrie Pitzel and her children that the death had been faked and convinced Carrie to file an insurance claim on Pitzel. The subsequent insurance investigation got back to Holmes, who went to Philadelphia as requested. Chip the Howe had been employed to bring Alice Pitzel to come and identify her father, though Howe and Alice both likely thought it to be a fraud for the time being. Holmes cashed the insurance check, paying Howe, giving Carrie a very small sum, and keeping the lion's share for himself, 
claiming it was to pay for Pitzel's debts. He then arranged to take charge of three of the Pitzel children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, claiming that they, had been, that they had been sent safely into hiding. In reality, he was shepherding them into various hotels across the Midwest and North while doing the same to Carrie and her two remaining children, leading each group to believe that the other was far away. The entire time, he told Carrie that they were just about to meet Ben safe and sound, but constantly made up a reason for why they had to move on to another town. Georgiana was hauled along as well, though also staying in a different hotel and kept totally ignorant of Holmes' symphony of deception. She thought he was selling copiers for the ABC Copier Company. The Fidelity Mutual Company had launched an investigation after Inspector Gary had read Marion Hedgepeth's open letter detailing Holmes's planned fraud. With the aid of the Pinkertons, Holmes was finally tracked down and arrested in Boston, where the entire web started to unravel as detailed in Part 1. Holmes spent the next year and a half in prison, standing in two trials and featuring as a national mass-murdering sensation. His infamy first grew as the destroyer of the Pitzel family, as detailed in Part 1, and then his list of crimes exploded with the, with the Chicago investigation detailed in Part 2. Since then, his reputation as a serial killer has only grown down to the present. With the aid of recent scholarship, however, the Holmes legend can be reduced down to the facts. Holmes was a liar, cheat, fraud, and yes, a murderer. But there was no murder castle, and Holmes was not really a serial killer, at least not how that term is thrown around today. In total, he most likely killed nine people, which is a dreadful tally, but it falls far short of the 20 to 200 victims often imputed to him. Four of his victims all stemmed from a disastrous insurance fraud and his subsequent effort to cover his tracks. Had he not been stopped, he likely would have added at least three more to this total. The five women he killed before the Pitzels, Julia, Pearl, Emmeline, Minnie, and Nanny, were all killed out of expediency. He used and manipulated each of them and discarded their lives as it suited his own selfish purposes. But there is no evidence that he killed from psychological compulsion or in order to sate his bloodlust. Killing for Holmes, sad as it is, seems almost to have been the banal accessory to his schemes for self-advancement and enrichment. As much as he was a murderer, Holmes was also a con artist and serial liar who pursued a merciless path to become someone significant, to escape the rustic mediocrity of his boyhood. When people got in the way of that path, he killed them. And that, for better or for worse, is the real H.H. Holmes, a man whose true story, in its almost pathetic train of schemes and lies, is more interesting than the ghoulish fable so often told because it is all the more real. This concludes our three-part series on the unmasking of H.H. H. Holmes. I hope that you've enjoyed it and you aren't too depressed. While these episodes have come out in fairly rapid succession, the next installment of The Ingle Nook should be coming out in about a month or so. Follow the show to make sure you're notified when this happens. Our next topic will be a big change of pace and bring us to the shores of Dark Age Britain, where we'll examine some of the most colorful stories of the Viking Age. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Ingle Nook, be sure to like, favorite, or leave a review. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing here, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash for only $1 a month. 
With time, I hope to provide patrons with extra episodes, show notes, and more. For now, thanks for stopping by. I hope to have you around again real soon.